0: So you're tuned into a very special episode of the Combat Jack Show in which I uh, get the great opportunity to sit down and interview Hollywood, television, American culture, iconic legend, Norman Lear. And let me just give you some background with regard to how this happened, why this happened, and and what this is about. So it's no surprise to you or to the people that have been listening to the Combat Jack Show for a while, that I do have um, some serious aspirations about entering into academia, um, teaching, particularly on a college level. Uh, Myself and my network partner, Chris Morrow, because we have a good relationship with NYU or the people at NYU is that, you know, every year they have uh, an icon uh, come to the school uh, uh, specifically for the students. And they're interviewed uh, by a guest lecturer or a guest interviewer and somebody from from their faculty. So this year, they asked if I'd be interested in interviewing Norman Lear. I was like, yo, fuck yeah, Norman? Raise the bar, internet. So the format was, it would be myself and, and one of their members from their faculty, friend of the Combat Jack show, Dan Charness, who's author of the amazing book, The Big Payback. If you have not read The Big Payback, it is probably the best, no, no, it's the best book on the business, the rise of the business of hip hop. The rise of the business of hip-hop in the recording industry. You got to pick that up. Anyway, Dan is a full member of of the faculty at NYU, and he and I um, interviewed Norman. I got to tell you, man, you know, most of us of a certain age were raised on Norman's work, be it Sanford and Son, All in the Family, Good Times, Jefferson's, Different Strokes, you name it. You know, he was part and parcel of what television was in the 70s and in the 80s. And For those of you out there who might be a little bit younger from a younger generation, you might not even realize how Norman's work inspired you. So, you know, before we let you get get into the meat of this episode, I got to say my reflections on Norman for somebody who was 93 years old and still traveling across the country and doing a lot of work. He is very lucid. He was playing on his iPhone. His thoughts were very clear and deep. Very reflective, of course, also of the revolutionary times that was going on in the 1970s post-civil um, rights movement and what's going on right now, man, with, with the militarization of the United States and police forces and and the and, nine. And, and, and so we t- we cover a lot of issues. Um, this is one of my proudest moments. And internets, you know what we do, man. We, we really de- delve into the culture and we really try to document the history and, and general history, hip-hop history, urban history, and how it affects everything that we do today. So I proudly present to you um, the Norman Lear episode. Internet, salutes, and raise the bar. It's amazing. I can't believe I'm I'm sitting here with uh, my colleague Dan and, and Norman Lear because, in a sense, uh, Norman uh, raised me. I'm a 70s baby. And uh, I want to say... The majority of the TV shows when television was important, when we actually watched television, the shows that moved us the most were Norman's shows. Um, Good Times, The Jeffersons, which happened to be, uh, my mom's favorite show. And, and, and just, to re- just thinking of the shows that he produced and wrote and created and still hearing her laughter is, is something that, that I'll never forget. Norman has had a tremendous impact on American culture uh as we know it today and he has also had a tremendous impact on hip hop music and culture um as i said earlier he's the creator of many uh iconic shows all in the family you guys do you guys know these shows yes all in the family <laughs> the jeffersons good times sanford and son and different strokes to name a few
1: Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Mary
0: Hartman, Mary Mary Hartman. (laughs) I didn't understand that show. I was too young at the time. And it
1: came on too late. We're going to run it again for you.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Norman revolutionized the medium of television um, because he forced Hollywood and the American audience to deal with real issues such as racism, poverty, um, child abuse, interracial relationships and marriages. Um, So many issues that Television had never dealt with before. He's also received four Emmy Awards, 14 Emmy nominations, a Peabody, the National Medal of Arts, the Humanist Arts Awards, and a Woman in Films Lucy Award. Ladies and gentlemen, let's please give a warm welcome to this American legend, Norman Lear.
1: Thank you. You must get that every day. Thank you. You know... That's the best introduction I've ever received. <laughs> is that really the best? Okay. The best. Well,
2: let's quit while we're, we're ahead. Let's go <laughs> yeah, that.
1: let's do just... Thank you and good night. Good night.
2: <laughs> so, um, I thought maybe it would be a good place to start by seeing uh, a clip from uh, Norman Lear's flagship show, All in the Family. Um, you know, it is very hard, as Reggie was trying to do, to sort of explain. The impact that all in the family had in the 1970s, and it's also very hard to understate it. I mean it was the 1970s. I think it ran from 1971 to 1979. Yeah. so it really did span the decade from you know not long after the Beatles broke up to you know the, the death of disco. Um, and uh, in between that, so much happened. Uh, you know America uh, you know, fought and then fled. Vietnam, uh, Nixon was reelected and then sent out of office uh, for, during the Watergate scandal. Um, the uh, Jimmy Carter was elected president, and the hostages were taken in Iran. Just so much and the birth of hip hop and the birth it's of hip hop, actual, actual birth of hip hop, actual birth within hip-hop. that decade. Um, so, uh, but between I think seventy. 2 and 76 all in the family was the number one show in the nielsens for that entire period so when you talk about a juggernaut you know on tv today what would we consider you know a tv uh, you know what, what would be i don't even know what the number one show is right
0: now empire
2: empire right <laughs> that as as much conversation as goes on around that those were the kinds of conversations we had about all in the family so i wanted to play you a clip Um, that features some of the characters who were spun off into uh, the next series, The Jeffersons. Um, And also to to sort of preface this by saying one of the conceits of this evening that we're having tonight is that there are some commonalities between the work of Norman Lear uh, in the 1970s and 80s and hip-hop culture, which also arose during the same time. And we played, when you were coming in, a bit of a mixtape of all of the references in many different hip-hop songs to Norman Lear shows and characters. Um, even Tribe Call Quest's first single, I Left My Wallet at Nel Segundo, is a reference to Fred Sanford and Sanford and Son. But to me, it goes deeper than the lyrical references. To me, um, the kinds of frank and sometimes humorously frank conversations we have about race and class and ethnicity uh, in hip hop were not really present in American culture before hip hop in any other place except Norman Lear productions. Right? So to me, that's the greatest affinity. This sort of the idea of having a conversation about race, a frank one, originated with the shows and productions of Norman Lear. So without further ado, I just want to play you a little clip so you can kind of see what it is we're talking about when we talk about uh, all in the family. How
3: long has Lionel known this
2: girl? About two months.
3: Only two months and they're engaged
2: already? That's right. I blame it on daylight saving time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> real, yes, I, uh... <laughs> oh, you take good care of this pretty little lady, now. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'll do that. I like your family, Lionel. They all seem so nice. Oh, they got you fooled too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, what happened to your folks? Well, they'll be here soon. Lionel, have you told your father about my parents yet?
0: Oh, you mean about them being werewolves? Oh, <laughs> No, no, there's some things you don't tell my father until
3: it's too late. But, Lionel, I'm worried. Listen, relax. Everything's going to be okay.
1: Oh, <coughs> Now, uh, Peter, you don't have to be nervous with a colored crowd. Just keep <laughs> your eye on Hey. <laughs> Hi. What's <Hi. laughs> down the hall. Uh, no, no, I ain't looking for that. No, uh, not know. Do I look like an elk? <laughs> oh, hello, you two.
2: Hi Hi there. Oh, it's so nice of you to come, Archie. Yeah, I know. Where <laughs> is Mike and
3: Gloria? I don't see them.
2: Oh, they are over at our house picking up some records. Oh, that's Hi. nice. Now, can I introduce you to everybody? Oh, uh, well, I'll tell you the truth, Mr. Chase. Oh, would you rather have a drink first? That's the guy I want to meet, the bartender.
3: <laughs> Jefferson.
1: Oh, hi, Mrs. Bunker. Hey, Jefferson there. How are you? Listen, that uh, formal invitation you sent by your wife, uh, I think that was very whitey. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's exactly the way I felt when I did it. <laughs> George, why don't you take Archie over to the bar and offer him a drink? <laughs> hey, Jefferson. I seen you hosing down your porch yesterday. Oh, yeah? When am I going to see you hosing down yours? Barton. Yes, sir. Get the man
1: a drink, please.
3: What'll it be, sir? Uh, whiskey. Any particular brand? Yeah, the expensive brand. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, sir? Scotch and soda, please. Yes, sir. Hey, hey,
1: Jefferson, there's a switch for you. This guy giving you the big yes, sir. Why, right, he's a barton, ain't he? Yeah, but what I meant was I'm used to having it the other way around. Oh, yeah?
2: How many servants you got in that mansion you living in? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Let me tell you something about people. There
3: you are. Thank you. That is willing to work for me because if you got enough green in your pocket, then black becomes his favorite color.
0: <laughs> you know, Norman, I want to ask you, uh, growing up, uh, You didn't have to deal with the American race issues, as it were. What was it about um, race and what was it about uh, black people that inspired you so much in your work?
1: I I wish I could be absolutely certain, but my father was sent away, was sent to prison when I was nine years old. And uh, we had made a a little... uh, Crystal radio set together, and uh, I had that little crystal radio set, little cat's whisker on a crystal, and the earphones, and you tried to pick up signals. I picked up a signal one night when he was away. I was living with an uncle and an uncle and grandparents, my mother and my sister. I don't know where the hell they were. I I was it was a lousy, terrible time, and. Uh, uh, And I found a guy, I I heard a voice once, uh, Father Coughlin was a vicious, anti Semitic, anti Negro, anti, that was a word at the time, (laughs) Uh, anti New Deal. I mean, he was just, he was a bad guy. And it scared the hell out of me because I guess because I was alone and, and and I learned that there were people who disliked me because I was born to Jewish parents. And uh, and I think that gave me a sensitivity to, because he ranted about all kinds. He wasn't particularly racial, but he hit that note also. And uh, my father got out of prison three years later, we moved to New York, uh, and then we came back to Hartford, Connecticut. And when I was in my early teens, uh, I put, only put kind of put this together But recently, I was in my early teens, I fell in love with theater. I used to go in, I, I sold magazines and whatnot during the week, and I had the money to go to the theater in New York I took a train, uh, and I saw a matinee and came home. But I, time and again, slipping into, that was the best way I could put it, slipping into 125th Street, the tenements were like 15 feet away. And I couldn't get over the people in all of those windows. And and they were largely African-American. And I related. I mean, that's the earliest conscious vision or understanding of a feeling of a of relationship with people never, I never I never met, would never meet. And I, I, I remember writing for Edith on All in the Family uh, and thinking about that, she looked at somebody handed her a picture of something in a foreign country or something and she's looking at the camera looks at the picture too and there are three or four people in it she'll never meet. And her reaction to the picture was, uh, "I wonder what this person was doing." In the next second, they took that picture. In the next second, he or she was going to was they going to dinner? Were they going to meet their children? Were they? I, I wonder what she was going to do. And that's the way I related to those black families. I wonder who has a drawer with something in it they don't want anybody else to know about. You know, where does he or she keep their favorite things? I developed a relationship to that. And uh, it's, you know, that's the best way I can put it. That was the earliest I can remember uh, feeling kinship and oneness with these families.
0: And, and I would imagine also, based on your answer, uh, a sense of curiosity about a world that you didn't know about but were curious oh, yes. enough to envision what it was. Oh, yes. Uh, when you were, you, you write in your book, I recently read your book, it's a great book,
1: um, and you wrote about... Even um, This I Get to Experience is even the this, title of the book. Yes. Now, it's perfect mentioning it now because here I am... I'm sitting in front of all you young faces. Uh, It's never happened to me before, this moment in time. It's never happened to any of you before. We have never been together. It's taken me 93 years, a couple of months, and several days, and I don't know how many hours, (laughs) just to get here to be with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) it's taking you every fucking minute of your life. (laughs) And maybe I'm way ahead of you at 93. You add up to more than that. So So there.
0: You write about uh, being in the Air Force and hearing the ugliness of racism um, being uh, spoken uh, amongst your colleagues. Um, One particular phrase that infuriated you was someone referring to playing uh, nigger baseball. Where was that fury coming
1: from? You know, do you know? I did write what nigger baseball was, was.
0: and you can explain what that.
1: Yeah, that was uh, some white kids in a car. This was in the South. I think this guy that was talking about it was from Georgia. And they would go out in the car and they'd come up behind a black kid or a black man or you know on a bicycle, and stick a uh, a baseball bat out the window. Get him in the back of the head. That was nigger baseball. And uh, I think I lied during my youth, or not my youth, but early after the war, uh, and said I hit him. I wanted to kill him, but I didn't. I don't think I hit him. I didn't hit him, but don't like myself for not belting him. Uh,
0: Your father, you mentioned your father uh, being away in prison at an early age. Um, and in your book you, you you do such a great uh you create such a great picture of the complexity and the warmth and the and the closeness of the relationship with your father and it seems as if your father's impact on your life impacted your vision of a lot of your characters can we talk about his sure. his, his influence on your characters
1: what do you want to know well <laughs> you know his <laughs> <laughs> influence see, on this character you, you see aspects
0: of from what I read, I, I, I see aspects of your father in Archie, in and George yeah. Jefferson, and, and, and even in Maud. And what, what was that influence that channeled these characters? Are you
1: going to show any more of All in the Family? Cause there's, are you going to show that wonderful scene where they're in the Archie and Mike or they get locked into a cellar and they yeah. have to spend the night there? Archie and <laughs> Mike in a cellar. Because it says so much of uh, uh, that scene they they're not going to be able to they're not going to get out until somebody opens the cellar in the morning. And there's some booze down there and they're drinking and they're talking together. And uh this is the son-in-law and 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 Archie Bunker for those of you who don't know. And they fight about everything and Archie is the guy you heard and the he the, the kid is the liberal and, and this is the first time they've ever had this kind of time alone. And under the circumstances, with a little bit of wine, and Mike is learning how Archie was brought up. And we learn that Archie's father had a hand on him, Archie says. Oh, he had a hand on him. And he beat the shit out of him. But Archie doesn't say it that way. His father loved him. His father went out to work every day to bring back money to keep a head over the, a roof over their head and food on the table and and uh, and uh, and beat the hell out of him, locked him in a closet for seven hours once. Mm. This pours out of him in love. Father, that's the man that comes home bringing you candy. Father's the first guy to throw a baseball to you. And take it for walks in the park, holding by the hand. My father held me by the hand. Oh hey. My
3: father had a hand on him now, I tell you. He busted that hand once. And he busted her on me.
1: To teach me to do good. <laughs> my father he shoved me in a closet for seven dollars teach me to do good of course he loved me he loved me my i adored my dad and he did some he had some grandstand plays you know that wipe out everything uh and, and I don't know. It's the way life touches all of us in some way.
2: I want to talk about your move into TV. Um, yeah. You know, before you, TV was, in large part, there were two, two sort of differences between sort of pre-Norman Lear era and post, in that uh, uh, TV was, by and large, very canned. Um, Didn't deal with a lot of real-life issues. Uh, And according to some of the things you've written, it was populated by a lot of veterans of radio who had a certain way of Mm -hmm. writing and a certain way of dramatizing narrative. Could you talk a little bit about you as a part of this new generation of writers and what your vision was for the kind of TV that you wanted to do?
1: I didn't have a vision for the kind of TV I wanted to do. You know, we were, when we got started, I was accused of uh, sending a message, you know, and I would hear from people and I'd get it in the mail. You know, babe, pal, if you want to send a message, there's Western Union. You don't use your television show. And uh, and I used to say, well, I'm not sending message, And I really believed I wasn't. Uh, we were trying our. The name of the game for us was to make an audience laugh. Now, I am a uh, a kind of a total person. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this.
0: Can I swear? You can swear all because you want. I, Fuck
2: yeah. I, the more the better. Really. <laughs> I just,
1: you know, there are some things that don't seem to come out any other way. Well. Right. <laughs> Or or, well, (laughs)
2: any other way. Uh, What was I saying? (laughs) We were talking about the kind of TV that you You wanted to make. uh, So, uh, so
1: uh, about the message. So, I would insist, and and believed with all my heart, we weren't trying to send a message. I was. I got started a little bit later in terms of the. you know, I wasn't in my 20s, or in my 30s, going on my 40s, When uh, 1970 rather, when All in the Family, 1971, when All in the Family started. Uh, I was born in 1922, so I was just under 50 years old. So I was a grown guy, and I was serious. I had a couple of kids. Uh, I loved my country, uh, and I don't mean loved my country uh, Le Pen's uh, pinned Le Pen's. style. I I I mean that's bullshit. I hate those pins because <laughs> uh, you don't have to say I love my country. You know, you either live it and love it. Or, anyway, for years I would say I'm not trying to send a message. I mean, really, for several years, uh, and meant it with all my heart. And then I realized suddenly, uh, wait a minute, what if I am? Or maybe I am, and what if I am? I do have a point of view. I'm a grown man with a point of view. I believe a woman should be allowed to take care of her own body her own way and and the government shouldn't be interfering with what she wanted to do with her body and I believed a thousand other things you know uh, but then I guess the door that opened for me that allowed me to realize. I had a message, was when I thought about the shows that preceded me, they were called Beverly Hillbillies, they were called Green Acres. You know, the biggest problem in those shows was the roast is ruined and the boss is coming to dinner. Or Mom scratched the car, how do we keep Dad from knowing until we fixed it?
3: What is that? Hot water soup. (laughs) Hot water soup? Soup made out of hot water. Just plain hot water? What else you put in a hot water soup? You might put a bouillon cube in it. Why, then it wouldn't be a hot water soup. You said you were going to make chicken noodle. Well, it isn't my fault. It's the chicken's. I looked at every one of them, and none of them had noodles on them.
1: And I thought, well, my God. If, those, if, if that's the toughest problem families face... In comedy on American television uh, there are no race riots or there are no race troubles there are no body parts missing there there is no economic problem you know we don't have problems abroad we don't have problems with our president we just, you know the roast is room the bosses coming to dinner and that's what we do I thought that was wall-to-wall and Florida ceiling messaging and What am I, why am I I facing it? So I suddenly realized and was able to say, yeah, we have a point of view. I don't think we're, we're not trying to send a message. We have a point of view and we all live together. And uh, there is nothing that we are saying on television that you won't hear in a playground anywhere in America. Uh, So, you know, I I was able to stand up that way.
2: Could you describe for our audience a bit about the initial reaction, uh, interpretations and misinterpretations of All in the Family, and specifically Archie Bunker, very new kind of character in American TV where the the protagonist and the the center of the show uh, has some bigoted views. A black kid liked you?
3: Oh, the black kid
2: beat the hell out of me
3: Why? I I don't know, not much Oh, he must have had a reason Well, he said that
1: I said he was a nigger Did you? Sure
2: Well, then that was the reason
1: What the hell reason was that? That's what all them people was calling days. Yeah. I mean, everybody we know call them people. That's all my own man ever call them.
2: Yeah. Uh, I gather there were some people who got, got it and got mm-hmm. that the, the joke was on Archie. And there were some people who
1: didn't right, get it so and
2: maybe didn't even, did get it and didn't care. There Could were
1: you? people who said right on Archie. I mean, I got a lot of mail and uh real mail, real male. <laughs> Real yeah real mail. i truly mean nobody ever wrote right the, the right on archie kind of letter that didn't also indicate in some way that they knew what we were about because they would some of them would be hateful some of them want, and go back where you came from jew bastard or uh you know write on archie but fuck you for your you know, but we know what you're doing politically or that kind of thing everybody it seemed to me that wrote that said, had a right on Archie feeling found some way of disagreeing uh, with the attitude of the show with the you know way the show was uh, was directed or in the direction it took my mother, I, I haven't spoken about my mother she never told me she had, I called her after the first show the first Martin and Lewis show long before the success of in the family, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. The, we, the credits were still rolling, and, uh, and the thunderous applause and craziness, and the guys were the biggest success in the world. And uh, her question to me was, I pick up the phone, Mom, yeah, did the boys like it? I said, Mom, you, did you see it? Oh, of course. Did you like it? Well, I don't matter. Did the boys like it? I couldn't get her to say I laughed, sweetheart. Thanks. <laughs> Never. I just want to, so you'll know this woman. Uh, I called her many years later and many years ago. I said, Mom, I just got a call. it's was it's, uh, it's like 10 o'clock my time on a Sunday morning. She was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I said, Mom, I just got a call from a friend that tells me, he runs the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences. He says that they're going to start a Hall of Fame and listen to this. These are the first inductees in the Hall of Fame. William Paley, who invented PBS. David Sarnoff, General David Sarnoff, who uh, started NBC. Edward R. Murrow is the greatest of the uh, news, uh, foreign correspondents. Uh, Patty Chayefsky, the greatest writer that ever came out of television. Lucille Ball, Milton Berle, and you. And I said, they're going to... Take me into the Hall of Fame in that first group. Listen, if that's what they want to do, she said, Who am I to say? <laughs> <laughs>
3: the
1: attitude the attitude never left. I have I have a film of her, my my son in law took when I remarried and uh my son is twenty seven and he was an infant. And uh my <laughs> my son-in-law was interviewing her before she met the baby. She had flown to California and before she met the baby. And when he asked her, what do you think of your son? She never could never talked about me like I was older than nine or 12. I Oh, he was so funny when he used to roll, uh, fall down the stairs pretending he was really <laughs> falling down the stairs. And she never talked about me as a grown man, ever. So finally, off camera, my son-in-law is saying, "The camera's on my mother." Uh, here comes, here comes your uh, your new grandson, and I walk in, and I'm carrying Ben in my arm. I'm holding her, holding Ben this far away, and there must be a minute of uh, a half of her going. Oh, oh. She never touches the blanket. She never touches the child. He offers her the child. I'm not making a go of this (laughs) but it pinpoints, it nails my her relationship to me and and this absolute inability to touch that child for whatever reason I will never understand.
0: Good times. Good times. You know, instant hit, uh, and uh, it was a uh, television uh, like America had never seen before, and definitely a Black America had never seen before. What was it about Good Times that made you feel qualified to write about the lives of these Black people?
1: Oh, that's a really good question, worded that way. What made me feel qualified? Because that came up, uh, in you know. It starred two people named Esther Roll and, and John Amos. And uh, they were the parents.
2: You're not going to believe it. Well, baby, baby can't be half as good as the surprise I got for you. I just came back from an appointment at the high school principal. Florida, I got a job, a good job.
3: Oh, James, <laughs> wonderful well, i'm so happy for you and
1: i'm gonna get my high school diploma
3: i just enrolled in night school
2: hey, oh, man, i tell you i got the best job i ever had and you won't even let me get a word in edgewise. oh james i'm sorry i got carried away with myself you ain't got time to go to school you got a family to raise james have you looked at your family recently they're practically grown well if you go to school at night who's gonna do the cooking and the cleaning May we get a white woman to come in
1: twice a week. How many of you saw Good Times at all, ever? Oh, so a lot of you have seen Good Times, so you know those characters. Uh, and, uh, and they were a pain in the ass, both Esther and, and John. Uh, but I began to realize, you know, a few shows into it, these were the first black parents black citizens black family leaders of black families on Television by the way, you know, we had 40 million people a week watching that a show And sometimes up to 60 million people a week. There are only three networks so the Responsibility on Esther roll and John Amos to represent the black family in America for the very first time before all those people Had to be enormous and I have some sense of that so When I wanted to do uh, a show Alan Manning's was the producer of the show his name comes to mind too Because we were in this together. We wanted to do a show about uh, If you you remember the show Thelma who played the daughter Mm -hmm. was as pretty a woman as ever existed on television black white Indian she was just gorgeous and she was 16 and we wanted to deal with guys hitting on her and The whole question of sex and as a teenager Esther didn't want to go near the script I mean the minute she heard it, the subject she didn't want it to be a table reading now That was unreasonable that we shouldn't even read it. I think I was saved and our relationship was well I started to say saved But it worked. It wasn't saved, but it worked because I understood, I think, the enormous responsibility on these people. So we reached a point where one morning uh, at a table reading, I said, I think it was over this particular script, but I said, uh, you know, I was not born to a black family. So the patina, the you know, the way you handle things in terms of the way you speak, and do, uh, I cede all of that to you, you know. And they, you know, the show was successful because they they made it really authentically them. Uh, I'm sure those of us who were white didn't do that. But I said, uh, but though I am a white dude, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I was a boy, I was a son, I was a nephew. I was an uncle. I am an uncle. I I played all daughters. the roles we all play. Yeah. The buck has to stop somewhere. I'll make those decisions. And we did the the show about Thelma, and uh, her resisting and whether her, it was reasonable at sixteen, soon to be seventeen. To, uh, we talked about all those things. And it was great. And and uh, you know, I never saw. I never. Saw, I saw John after. Uh, good times how was Uh, that I did a show called 704 Hauser and uh, I'm going to tell you how he gave me the finger the biggest finger anybody could ever give anybody (laughs) in the business
0: for some context uh, John Amos uh, I guess had some some issues with regard to the portrayal of the family, particularly J.J., and yeah. you speak about the responsibility he had to the black community. And at a certain point, the butting of heads wouldn't make wouldn't work. Right. So you, had him, you killed, killed the character, killed them off.
1: Yeah, we killed the character. I we, that script was written about Archie originally uh, because Carol and I were having such a difficult time. God. So there was a So the moment. male
0: figures in each household. Yeah. Y- yes. Each household was. Is, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: It's an interesting nuclear weapon to have in your arsenal as a TV producer. Yeah, so being able know. to
0: kill some Like, I, I'll push the button. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I can the, push the button. Yeah. Not that easy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not that easy. It was, it was hard as hell. I don't want to seem, uh, you know, there's so much that goes, when it goes into it and went into it. And it sounds like when you're telling the story, oh boy, he, me, so strong and able to... Yeah. It, it, it was more it had to do with understanding the difficulty that they were going through and understanding the difficulty that I, and and uh, as a writer and, and somebody who was shaping the show, was going through, that there was silliness on both sides. The human condition is foolish. We interrupted you,
0: but you were about to talk about John's middle finger.
1: Oh, John's middle finger. No, I interrupted myself, Okay. to be fair. It was 704 Hauser Street. We were in rehearsal for a couple of days, and we had, I forget how the first show went, but we had to pre-tape uh, before the audience. We taped a couple of things that we ran as flashbacks. And, like, we did two days. And then for the the third day, John was going to be a little bit late because he was getting a haircut. And this is a man with a full head of hair who walked in looking like Reggie. He had had his whole head shaped. So if you're in production and you've been shot for two days, photographed for two days with a full head of hair, (laughs) and now you shave off every fucking blade, (laughs) are you not walking in this way? (laughs) That's a nice little finger, man. Oh my God! <laughs> and uh, but high, uh, uh, Hollywood is a miracle town. Yeah. And the the next morning we had a full head of hair for him. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, you're going through challenges. You spoke about the challenges you were going with through with the the letters you were receiving, um, but even you know, uh, with regard to your portrayal of the black family, you you got paid a visit by the Black Panthers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who uh, claimed that uh, Good Times was garbage and you were the garbage man?
1: Oh, you know, remember that? Can yeah. can you can you yeah. talk about that? Stokely was he the head of uh, Stokely Carmichael? Was yes. he the head of the Black Panthers? I think right? so. Yes. Then I think it was him. or there's another name that uh, that runs through my mind too. But they came in, he and two other guys, and uh, were you nervous? Uh, no, no, because they were they were clearly playing tough. Right. I mean, they weren't violent they and, was there any chance that they were. go did i thought they were going to be violent it wasn't that i want to see the garbage man my secretary came in and said there's a couple of guys out here who want to see the garbage <laughs> man that's you you know when i opened the door i could i mean it wasn't like they were threatening right. at all but they did want to see the garbage man <laughs> because the fucking show was garbage and uh and and uh J.J. Walker was getting a laugh, you know. J.J. Walker was a character who was—I loved him so. He was so great, and uh, but he—he he just said the word dynamite and got a huge laugh, the way he said it, and he said it a lot because it got a big laugh.
0: She has a figure that makes the number eight look like the number one, and a smile that lights up the night. And it all belongs to Kid Dynamite!
1: And the two older parents, John Amos and Esther were furious at it. They couldn't stand it. And these guys didn't like J.J. Uh, I loved the character. So I remembered saying to them, uh, Oh, the garbage man, Can you come on over here. And I parted the shades of... Uh, window the sun was coming through and i said see you look down it came up take a look down there see the the the, uh, the, the cans and they said the, the, you'll find the garbage man down there and uh and and stokely went <laughs> just made her face and we sat down and we talked
0: right uh, what was the result what, what was the ending uh result of that
1: the result was I had something to think about about J.J. and mm. how many times he should do dynamite. Right. Uh, and, and that was basically the, the whole thing. The, oh, the other thing was a lesson and a, a giant help uh, because they were pissed off that John Amos, the father in this family, they lived in what were called the projects uh, in, uh, in Chicago. Cabrini-Green. Right? Cabrini-Green had to work two, and then a time or two, we had him work three jobs. Dad, you're going to be doing it? You're not going to get home until You know, it was that kind of thing. And uh, and they were pissed that the uh, only black father on television uh, was holding down three jobs. Why couldn't he be doing a little better? Why couldn't he? And that, as much as anything, or, or at the same timing, I I'll never remember well enough to know whats if, as much as anything, is is an overstatement, but it certainly figured into the Jeffersons moving on up. Absolutely played a part in 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 that that George Jefferson would be somebody who was really doing well. You kind of answered my next question, George Jefferson.
0: Uh, when you look at hip hop, you you look at the uh, a do-it-yourself, uh, self-made millionaire who. Uh, is not afraid to slam the doors in in, in the face of the white man and, and and we had never seen a character like that on television before
3: do both of y'all live here
2: uh-huh someplace
3: ain't it yeah i didn't know the jeffersons had a couple a couple of what <laughs> <laughs> made in a butler you two butler what yeah they must be real rich <laughs> Hold
2: it, Diane. We are the Jeffersons.
3: Are <laughs> hey, you right, Louis? He's a great joker. <laughs>
2: He's not joking, Diane. Oh, you
3: got to be kidding. How can you afford to live in a place like this? You ain't tall enough to be no basketball player. <laughs> Say what? And you too old for a rock and roll singer? (laughs) Look, this is our apartment.
2: Then you got to be a number
3: runner. (laughs) I'm getting out of here. No, hold on. on.
2: I don't run nothing except my own business.
0: What were the other inspirations for George Jefferson?
1: The only other inspiration for George Jefferson was was Sherman Hemsley. I wanted... uh, I wanted this black guy to be able to beat the hell out of Archie, you know, in language, uh, in body language, and I thought it would be more telling and funnier if he was smaller. <laughs> and I couldn't cast the guy for weeks and weeks, because I mean, it didn't have the idea, and, uh, and hired an actor, came in from, uh, from uh, San Francisco to play the role of the uncle so that we'd have the senior character, male character, on when we needed him because the story called for it. But it wasn't George, it was the uncle. And uh, then I, or my casting person, I don't remember who, I had seen Pearlie and forgotten. Uh, Pearlie was the name of a Broadway musical that Sherman Hemsley was in, and uh, uh, and I remembered Him from that. The minute that happened, I knew I had George Jefferson. Amazing casting.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, we can't talk about your shows and your legacy without talking about the music. Uh, And uh, since we are at a school about that centers on music, the music industry, music production, um, just want to play a little bit of one of your more famous themes. So, Quincy Jones had been an arranger since the 1950s, a record hit record producer since the 1960s. He had been doing TV themes. I think he did Ironsides well before this. And uh, he did this incredible theme for Sanford and Son. But not just in this series, but in every series, music was such a, 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 their theme music really set the standard, I think.
0: Your shows had the best music.
2: Had the best. Could you talk a little bit about your musical sensibility and how that played into, say, your selection of Quincy to do the theme for Sanford and Son or uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the Jefferson's thing with Je- Genet Dubois and so on? Well,
1: uh, Quincy and I went back. We were great friends long before uh, the sh- these shows. When we were doing, Bud Yorkin and I were doing specials. I will notice, Quincy and I were together just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we've never been together when we haven't talked about this night. We were working on a Duke Ellington special at a theater that doesn't exist anymore in uh in l a uh, and we were we thought we were going to be through at ten o'clock at night. you know it was like five in the morning when mm. we, we uh. finished the show. I mean, it was natural to ask Quincy to do this. And uh um, with, I mean I I don't have any I, I if if I hear it and I, and love it, that's as much as I you know, I don't know what it takes to get there.
2: It was uh Charlie
1: Strauss and I forget his partner's name who wrote the the uh theme song to All in the Family. I wanted a theme song I don't I don't remember whether it was a sh- I, mean, I think shows had theme songs before we did it because Archie lived in the past they got that idea right away and they they it, it, and I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to do a show about a guy who I mean a song about a guy who was married to the past and couldn't bear the progress like a black movie black family movie next door so they wrote those were the days Boy, the
3: way Glenn Miller played Songs that made the hip parade
1: Guys like us, we had it
3: made Those were the
0: days Which is very haunting. The song is very haunting. Yes.
1: It's very, somebody played it uh, uh, orchestrally. That's another long story. Uh, yes. And it was gorgeous. It's a beautiful song. And it's, you know, it's five black notes. It's just five black notes. You know, the, the, the connecting theme
0: also with regard to your work and hip-hop is that hip-hop, uh, for the most part, has been anti-censorship. Your work has been anti-censorship. And you write extensively about fighting program practices. Why was it so important that you didn't give an inch to the issues that you thought were important with regard to being censored in your work?
1: Well, I, I you know I, I did give an inch. Uh but you gave look, him help no. but but when it was when something was just plain the very first episode of All in a Family. I didn't want to tell much of a story because I needed all the time to get a 360 degrees of the character Archie Bunker. So the little story was Archie and Edith were at church on a Sunday morning and it was their 25th wedding anniversary, and uh, Gloria was making a a brunch for them, a surprise brunch when they came home from church. Mike realizes that they're alone in the house, which happened very rarely, and they weren't gonna be home from church for a little while, and he gets Gloria to go upstairs. They're no sooner upstairs than the front door opens. Archie hated the sermon, hated the minister. (laughs) Uh, I walked in and they saw the balloons and you know table set and so forth uh, Having heard them upstairs. They come running down the stairs Archie sees them running down the stairs buttoning up and he says 1110 of a Sunday morning mm-hmm. that had to come out That had to come out that had to to come out now This was at the last minute. I'd been through weeks of all of, of archie's words and and you know his language and and so forth as hateful as that was to them and everything else they now came down to this eleven ten of a sunday morning had to come out i knew that if i i thought that was just plain silly I, when i said why well because it puts a picture in the audience's mind mm. 11, 10 of a son. yes, we know what they he's accusing them of doing. Well, we know why they went upstairs in the first place. Right. <laughs> I just, it, my thought was, this is silly. If I give in to silly, I'm going to be controlled by silly for the rest. I'll never mm. get away from it. Right. So it wasn't so much, it was, this is my life. I don't want to be controlled by silly. I also had, because I had done... a a film called cold turkey between the first shot i had at all in the family with abc in 1968 and 1970 when it went on the air and on cbs i had two years i made a film and as a result of that film i was sitting with an offer to do three pictures write produce and direct so when nbc said you know it's got to come out i said it was easy to say screw it yeah you know, I'll do my three pictures. Yeah. You take your show and shove it. Yeah. And they conceded. And they conceded. And the show went on. Archie said it for 50 states, and not one seceded from the union. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: want to ask just a couple more questions, no. and then we want to move into some questions from the audience. Um, the 80s were a different time from the 70s. Uh, Cosby Show was, uh, you know, in many ways the centerpiece of entertainment uh, in the in the 80s, and in some ways its portrayal of a middle class black family and it being sort of a non-issue sitcom harkened back to I think earlier days in TV, and and I I sometimes wonder even today what we see on television is not I guess. You know, a bad word to use would be edgy. It was not, not quite. Doesn't quite push the envelope like uh, your shows did. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about whether the kinds of things that you did on TV can be done nowadays, uh, and if they're not happening right now, why aren't they happening? I
1: certainly think they can be done in terms of the American audience. I think they're not done because they're not. You know, nobody elects to do them. Mm. It's as simple as that. There are certainly men and women around. But at the same time, there are some really edgy things. I mean, transparent. How about that show? Mm. Fabulous. I still think South Park is as good as anything I've ever seen. (laughs) Uh, You know, I love... uh, Huh? Don't you? Yeah, South Park is raw. South Park is... I, I love it. Uh, but speaking of South, Park Book of Mormon is a gift to sanity, like t- a gift to sanity in our world. Uh, like nothing I've ever seen. I love those guys and Seth MacFarlane and <laughs> his stuff. From I mean, there's some great, edgy stuff on, and in in the world of drama. Whoa, how much I can't keep up with the amount of shows people I respect say to me you're not watching you mentioned empire a little while ago you know i've seen empire enough to know it's wonderful but i haven't been able to see it every week right. and i tell myself i will binge on a couple of years of it at some <laughs> yes. point but 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 for, for, for shows like the
0: jeffersons and 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 all, and all in the family where you know you boil down the argument of rape and it's and all its raw elements i I would agree with Dan that we're not seeing those type of shows. Like, the real, we're seeing
1: edgy shows. What about Carmichael? Do you see, have you seen Carmichael? No, I haven't seen Carmichael. He wants to go there, I think, is, I've only seen it once. Okay. I'll check that out. And it's, anybody see Carmichael? Whoa. (laughs) That's how much there is. God. Carmichael is, is, is doing it. I'll check it out.
0: Uh, you know, you talk about Archie being the scared dinosaur because there were all these changes going on uh, in the shadow of a post-civil rights movement. And he wasn't so much a a hateful person as much as he was scared. And so Archie Bunker, in a sense, was kind of unique. But here we are in 2015, and it seems like there's an emergence of a whole new grade of Archie Bunker. Did you ever think you'd see that in 2015?
1: You mean running for the presidency?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amongst amongst the kooks, I mean... (laughs) The news, you know, the, the that news station, and, you know. It's a lot of Archie Bunkers in 2015. Oh,
1: it's no surprise. There's more me. now, it seems, than... I think you're absolutely right. But, but you don't find media calling attention to that. Right. I spoke... You know the Bohemian Grove? Yes. I spoke there six and weeks ago, seven, eight weeks ago now. I don't know. I was their lakeside speaker. And uh, this is a... Uh, it's a hundred and some years old. It's all men, 2,000 men well, in 127 or so encampments uh, in the Redwoods. I spoke, my subject was, uh, why do we never hear the name Dwight D. David Eisenhower, who was, uh, I served in World War II, and, uh, and he was the five-star general that led us through World War II, and then two-term Republican president, a really great man, uh, and you never hear his name, ever, by any of those people running for the presidency on the Republican side. There is, he never lived, as far as, you know, the record is concerned with them. And the reason is, the last thing he did when he left office, was to warn us about what he called a military-industrial complex. Wow. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes we should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. And in his first draft, which I saw at his library, the words were, the, the, the he warned us about the military-industrial-congressional complex. Somebody took, asked him to take out Congressional, he did. But he warned us about what's happening now, because we, I believe, that we are in the clutches of a military-industrial-congressional complex. The end of that road is fascism. It isn't socialism, it isn't communism, it's the other way. It's, you know... A small clique of people own it all. What's happening now with, uh, with uh, the billionaire class where, I don't know, I heard figures today, something like 0.6% own 30% of everything? Or You know, this is what wants to be uh, in television. You know, if the dramas won't deal with it, the comedies can't. And maybe I don't see South Park every weekend, maybe they are, because those are the guys who are nailing
2: it. So we'd like to, for some questions uh, from the audience here, Dave? Hi, so earlier you mentioned that you didn't set out to send any particular messages. Um, I'm currently reading Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, and he briefly discusses that All in the Family uh, tested pretty poorly before it got on the air, Um, so I guess... Even though you weren't setting out to send a message, uh, it I imagine became clear that there was a message and that people weren't so sure about what you were saying to them. Uh, is that something you were concerned about? Or as you weren't intending to send a message, you sort of just moved forward say you know, with the comedy stuff and said this is all secondary?
1: Well, let me tell you about You You, you mentioned that it didn't test well. I attended a couple of those, uh, perhaps several of those, uh, the focus groups. So this is about this many people sitting in a booth. Everybody has, or uh, sitting in a chair with a uh, dial on the, and if they didn't like something, they turned this way. If they did like something, they turned that way. And there was a big uh, clock like apparatus on the, where everybody could see it, and the needle went, I hate it. I love it. I hate it. I love it. <laughs> so, and I'm on the other side of a glass wall, a one-way wall with other with with the you know, head studio people. And I'm watching this. Now, I'm also watching the you know, when an audience laughs from the belly, they come up like this and they go down like this and they come up again. It's I always think of it as the most spiritual sight out of a church or synagogue anywhere. And I'm watching them do that. The dial hates it. Mm. <laughs> so I realize a guy is sitting there, a woman is sitting there. He doesn't want to be seen as laughing at Archie Bunker and those racial epithets. So he's laughing and he hates it. And uh, <laughs> that was, and as I said earlier about messages, it, for a couple of years I denied it and believed it uh, until I realized, well, wait a minute. There' have always been messages you if if you ignore what's going on in the country, isn't that a message? you' so help in America without a problem Hi how's it going? um
2: growing up, my father and I would uh watch reruns of Sanford and Son, and he would tell me how he would watch it with his dad. I just wanted to get like a little bit of like what was your inspiration behind that show?
1: Well, the inspiration behind that show, uh, there was a show called uh, Steptoe and Son that came from Britain. And it was, you know, very different because it it was about a father and son living in the same kind of a situation. But, you know, it wasn't a, a black show. But Bud Yorkin and I, on a trip to Las Vegas, fell in love with this lounge act he couldn't get on a main stage because he was too filthy, and it was Red Fox. Red Fox, <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> and he was as funny as anybody I have ever seen, ever, uh, not, as himself. I mean, he didn't have to be. He was Red Fox. He could walk into a room and tell you your mother just passed and make you laugh. <laughs> he, he was he was a clown. He was just a clown
3: the nerve to call us witches. And she was right. You three ugly witches. <laughs> and, and you married your husband and turned him into frogs. <laughs> Get out of here. Get the jumping. Get out of here. <laughs> For example. The wrath of God will strike you down. Miss Louisville slugger will knock you out.
1: So we fell in love with him at the same time somebody brought us this show from uh, or this script, a Septo and and it was perfect. And you will find, I. And by the way, I had nothing to do with the series. Uh, as a matter of geography, this part is interesting too. We were doing All in the Family at uh, Television City in 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 uh, L.A. And uh, we found Red and uh, Daman Wilson and this show. And we were rehearsing it three doors or three little studios down from where we were rehearsing All in the Family. And I was at, this is at CBS, and I think this is in the book. And and I was trying to get uh, Fred Silverman, who was the key executive in programming, who worked in New York, but he spent time in L.A., when he was in L.A. to come down and see this because he was in town for a couple, I couldn't get him down. One day I picked up the phone and I called NBC and I said, I've got this hilarious show to show you. And they were having lunch at a restaurant in Beverly Hills and they had to come pretty near CBS to get back to the valley where NBC was. They came and they saw the show of Red Fox and Damon Wilson, because the first act of the first show was just the two guys, and the All in the Family cast was in their room with them. We, we had no chairs; we were standing, and uh, and laughing, and they bought the show. So the show, for uh, it, it was on for a great long while, it was an NBC show for all the years it could have been, should have been, a CBS wow. show. And then it was on the other side of the hill, on the other side, in the valley. And there was no way I could work on that geography. No. My partner, Bud Yorkin, and, and his team took care of San Francisco. I had nothing to do with it creatively past the casting.
2: So a lot of the, the themes in your shows, and uh, specifically like the racial themes, are very distinctly American. Um, I'm curious... What the reception was globally? Did it kind of start conversations about these things worldwide?
1: Uh, you know, there were there were some countries where it played very well. It played very, extremely well in Israel,
3: mm.
1: and I I spent time in Israel uh, trying to convince them because I was asked, you know, is there was there something I could do to help. What was going on racially there, Palestinians and Jews. And, and I said, do all in the family. I couldn't, and they loved the idea. But the old story put, put, put three Jews in a room, you got 30 opinions, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> held true. <coughs> and, and I couldn't, get, they loved the idea and everything else. That prevailed, yeah. and they didn't do it.
0: Um, I think that was amazing. I, I have one last question for you, if you guys don't mind. You know, I like to do top five, uh, where I ask my uh, subject, your top five favorite, your top five favorite shows of all time.
1: Uh, of my shows? Of any of, show. Of, of any <laughs> show? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you... Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I thought you meant... Uh, yeah. <laughs> any show, top five I favorite mean, shows of, of your it, life. It, you know... When I'm asked, by what what did I love most of what I've done, I really can't answer it because, I mean, this is the moment we've had together. This is as good a moment as I have ever lived. If you had brought me a sandwich and I love the sandwich, I wouldn't wish to compare it with any meal I may have eaten in Paris two years ago or Rome or anywhere in the world if I'm enjoying it. So, I mean, I have had a perfectly terrific time talking to you guys, looking at you guys. It's as good as anything I've ever had because it's now. It's the moment we've lived. And uh, so I feel that way about so many shows. I I mentioned the Book of Mormon as the gift of, of sanity. I think of it, you know, in ways like that. Hamilton, holy shit, have you guys seen Hamilton? Who has seen Hamilton here? Oh, do not miss getting to the theater to see Hamilton. It Talk about hip-hop. This is, mm. if anything teaches you that hip-hop is at the center of our world, oh, I could go on forever. It, it's, uh, I cannot wait to see it again. I only saw it four or five nights ago. Can't wait to see it again. Let's do Huh? That's two. <laughs> oh, that's two. <true. laughs> uh, uh, we did a we did a show where Edith lost her faith, and uh, there were, we had introduced a uh, a transsexual on the show in and the seventies. Seventies. Huh? In the seventies, wow. an episode in which oh God, this was funny. Archie drove a cab in order to make more money at night. And uh, there was a woman in the back of his cab who had a heart problem. And he gave her mouth-to-mouth for his hesitation and saved her. And she wanted to thank him. So she, because she hadn't had the ability to thank, she tracked him down through the cab company and came to the house. And before Archie came down the stairs to see who was there, Edith had met her and learned that the woman... Was really a guy, who was a transsexual. So Archie had given mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to a man, from his point of view. When he came down the stairs, asked, "Well, why aren't you laughing?" (laughs) (laughs) That was hilarious. (laughs) Uh, So he comes down, he finds out that that's the case. Anyway, she played on a couple of more shows and Edith loved the character, we all loved. And uh, when I wanted to examine Edith uh, losing faith, this character was killed for being who she was.
3: Ma,
2: who are you mad at?
3: I'm mad at God.
2: Well, you think that God was responsible for what happened to Beverly?
3: I don't know. All I know is Beverly was killed because of what he was. And we're all supposed to be God's children. It don't make sense. I don't understand nothing no more.
2: Maud, did you ever have a subject in school that you didn't understand?
3: Yeah, algebra. <laughs> I hated it. I couldn't understand it, so I dropped it. But
2: you didn't drop out of school, did you? Ma, what I'm trying to say is that maybe... Maybe we're not supposed to understand everything all at once. Maybe we're just supposed to understand things a little bit at a time.
3: Trouble with me is I don't understand nothing.
2: Ma, that's not true.
3: You understand plenty. Ma,
2: if there is a God, you're one of the most understanding people he ever made. We need you.
1: It took us weeks, weeks, weeks. How does she regain her faith? What happens for her to regain her faith? And we never found, we we couldn't find the answers to that until somebody innocently asked at one point, weeks later, what what happened to Archie when she lost her faith? And in a flash, I knew we had it. Uh, Archie goes to pieces. He needed his wife's strength to be anything in his world and uh and her strength came from her faith so uh it was that's one of the that those two episodes uh for my work was uh there's
0: one more one, one more and we need one more go ahead give no, me that's it. we need, we need <laughs> one more we need one more show from you to uh, round out the five
1: and uh, Scorsese's Goodfellow, Godfellow, Godfather. Uh, Goodfellas. Good Goodfellas. 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 That's a good one. Uh, Spielberg's Lincoln. I don't know. Oh, Spielberg's. Oh, God. You answered the question, the, but we can the, go on. This listen. this. <laughs> no. Spielberg's uh, about on the Second World War. What was the film?
0: Saving Private Ryan. Saving, Saving Private, Private Ryan. Ryan.
1: Yeah. At the the very last line, he's walking Tom Hanks through the uh, the graveyard in D.C. the and he's passing through the crosses and so forth. And he asks his wife, "Have I lived a good life? Have I been a good man?" I can't remember the exact word. Under the circumstances of the hour and a half or two hours that preceded it. That line was just, after everything he'd been through, he'd still wished to know, have I lived a good life?
0: There you have it, Mr. Norman Lear. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. This is thank incredible.
0: You. You. Uh, and as I do in, in, in all of my shows, I like to close by saying, uh, dream those dreams, and then man up, woman up, and live those dreams. Because a life without dreams is black and white, and the universe flows and technicolor, and surround sound. Salutes.